turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians, to Philippians chapter 3. I hope you're aware that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God is breathed out for us. But there are passages of scripture that epitomize um, certain truths, eminent truths for us. And I draw your attention this morning to the third chapter of Philippians because in the third of Philippians we have God's supreme objective. And the Apostle Paul directs us to it in his own inimitable style under the inspiration of the Spirit by presenting, first of all, to us something of his own personal pedigree and then directing our minds to that of which he became utterly persuaded, that is, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the person of the Son of God. And through the medium of this personal pedigree and this persuasive principle that he establishes for us, he presents us with this, this ultimate purpose of, of God, that is, the people of God should know God as he has revealed himself in scriptures. So I want to read then from verse 1 of Philippians uh, through to the end of verse 14. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath, or if he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the other day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained or were already perfect, either were, were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul begins this final section of his letter to Philippians. And he issues a warning And the warning concerns those who seek to destroy the truth of the gospel of Christ. It's not the first time he has issued such a warning. 
It's not the last. But he has this great ultimate objective of God in view. And since he has it in view, he begins as he does. By issuing this warning to be careful lest anyone should ever turn them away from the truth. He refers to such as dogs. Now, it's not the dogs that some of us have have come to love. But these were ravenous creatures that were well known that in the cities and dumps of the cities of that generation would would have roamed, eating scraps. And they were very vicious animals, having become wild. And so he uses this kind of language. It's very strong language. It really couldn't be any stronger. He does so, as I say, because he's got something in view. And what he has in view, he doesn't want to be distorted in any sense. So he begins, as I've intimated to you already, by presenting this personal pedigree. He presents it to us in verses 4 through 6. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, he says, if any other man thinks he has, he has more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal with respect to his Judaism, persecuting the church, of which we know something of the record that we have in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. This man, Saul of Tarsus, was a very angry man. He was a um, he was the, the Judaizer of Judaizers. He was the oracle of his day. He was brought up in this strict religion. He lived for it. He would have died for it. But in the road to Damascus, he is met by the very same God that he seeks to destroy. And it's all changed for him. But he presents to us this pedigree of his former life. It's a sevenfold pedigree. We know this. Four of the things that are presented to us, they're inherited. Three are achieved. He was quite a character, wasn't he? With respect to religion, we might say, to put it in a vernacular, he had religion to the eye teeth. He was extremely devout. Uh, Sometimes, if I can say this by way of aside, he speaks of himself as a Pharisee, and immediately when our eyes fall upon the word Pharisee, we understand that it's kind of synonymous, and it becomes synonymous with hypocrisy, with the play-acting you know, presenting a front which is just not true. Well, this man, this Pharisee, wasn't a hypocrite. Whatever else you can say about Saul of Tarsus, he was not a hypocrite. He was sincere, profoundly sincere. And all that he did was sincere. He believed nothing could distract him, no one could dissuade him from pursuing that track that he believed would bring him into the presence of God. He was pursuing that track via an apostate Judaism that had long since lost its way. You hear our Lord Jesus, for example, in Mark chapter 7, saying to the generation of Jews that you've made the word of God of none effect by your vain traditions. And the, the, the oral law had superseded the moral law of God and it had lost its significance to such an extent as the, the moral law of God was enshrouded by those things that were orally spoken and had corrupted the law. And so Saul of Tarsus was, was a preacher of that apostate Judaism. But notwithstanding, he believed it, and he believed it with every fibre of his being. 
And he presents us with this, this pedigree. Now, he does so. He does so because he, he wants these people to understand precisely the wonder of the grace of God. That's his focus. It's always his focus. He has got no other focus. He's, he's a single-minded man. He's got nothing else in his thoughts but Christ and Christ crucified. Or as he puts it in, in Corinthians 2 and 2, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He could have appealed to his, his great intellect. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, the great teacher, so he could have appealed to so much. But he doesn't because such was the, the transformation that took place on the road to Damascus that here he is presenting to us this former life and he does so in a structured way through verses 4 through 6. It's a wondrous testimony, isn't it? You see, these people to whom he is writing, these converts, they believed that you needed something else. It's kind of redolent throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul addresses it again and again. I suppose principally in his letter to the Galatians, as I've read to you at least in part. But they believed what you needed was a little bit of Judaism. You needed to be a little bit of a Jew in order to be a true and honorable Christian. But the Apostle Paul is appalled by this. And you might like to read the letter to the Galatians if you're not convinced of that already. You can read his letter to the Galatians. And he's monumental there in establishing this person, Jesus Christ, and this whole truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so he does so here also to the Philippians. He's not going to tolerate one, one degree of the Judaism to mix and to corrupt Christianity. And so he begins as he does presenting this personal pedigree. Then through verses 7 to 9, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ was that thing that the Apostle Paul ever had in focus. He's passionately persuaded of the truth of the gospel, convinced of it. And so it really begs a question, I think, that I pose to you this morning. How convinced are you and how persuaded are you of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being the solitary message which presents to us the solitary way through the solitary person of Jesus Christ, to enter eternal heaven? It's a good question, I think. It's a, a question that we need to ask ourselves, not in some introspective fashion, but in an honest way, that we should examine ourselves, which, of course, we're exhorted to do in Scripture, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These exhortations are not simply that we should always be inward looking, but it's a good thing to take stock. Where are we? What do I believe? Is what I believe consistent with the Bible? 
Do I believe it? And do I believe it wholeheartedly? See, the Apostle Paul believes it wholeheartedly. He's passionately persuaded of this gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so, he, he puts it so graphically for us. And I, I've read out of the authorised version this morning because uh, my daughter says I suffer from a thing that she calls word salad. But because I was brought up with the authorised version, if I read anything else, I kind of lapse back into Elizabethan English. So uh, that's why I read it to you this morning. But it uses very graphic language, doesn't it? Here's this man with this great testimony, this sevenfold testimony of this ritual circumcision, his relationship to Israel, his respectability as a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, his identification with the Hebrews with regards to that religion. He's a Pharisee and a zealot with all of that. And as touching the law, he's blameless. All of that gathered together. This was my hope. This was the foundation upon which I stood. No one could have questioned this man's sincerity. No no one could have said he was other than he claimed to be. But he says all of that, all of that, that combined testimony, I consider it, I think your, your NIV would put it, rubbish. The old language puts it dung. The Apostle Paul is basically saying this. All of this stuff that I formerly put my confidence in, I count it as worthless and less than worthless. Or, to put it very graphically, here you are, and wherever you live, walking along the street, and maybe some careless dog owner has left something in the street, and you step in it, and you would hope you would discover that you've stepped in it before you would step into your house and take the foul stuff with you. What he says is, that's how I count it. That's how I consider it. It's obnoxious to me. I don't look back with fondness upon it. I look back with horror upon it. That's how I consider it. I would ask you this morning, it may be I speak to someone who would consider themselves sufficiently religious, apart from what the Bible would require of you, apart from the gospel that God has given to you, well, here is the death knell to your claim. You can never stand before God. No one can. We're all born in sin. We have this propensity to sin. We're cut off from God. And nothing that we can do can ever bring us into a position of reconciliation with this God. Christ made a reconciliation. He and he alone did this. You can't do it. If you could have done it, God would not have sent his son to do it. Doesn't make sense. And thus the apostle treats this former life in the way that he does. But against that, that background, that sevenfold testimony, is this knowledge of this gospel. This encounter on the road to Damascus and all that it entailed We don't have a great deal of documentation in Acts chapter 9, but we have sufficient to know that this man is completely changed, and so dramatic was the change in his life that you don't even get to the end of the text of Acts chapter 9 until you discover that his contemporaries, his friends, his fellow Pharisees, his fellow religionists are waiting to put him to death because the great champion of first century Judaism has just been slain, and now he's the great advocate of the one of whom he was a great adversary. 
What, what was it he believed? He believed in the sacrifice and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. That once forever sacrifice of which the book of Hebrews speaks copiously. Once, once, once. This sufficient death that we can't add anything to it and we dare not detract anything from it. But this death is the satisfaction that God required in order to meet the terms of his own justice. So the holy law of God demands of us and we can't keep that law. We have no no desire or relish to keep that law. The carnal mind is eminent against God. It's not subject to that law. Neither indeed can it be. It can't be. Because we're alienated from God. And that moral law of God is in a true sense a revelation of God's character, isn't it? It's perfection. And we can't attain to perfection. The 99.9 won't cut it. The Apostle Paul understood something of the death of Jesus Christ. The wonder of that death, that behind all that was witnessed by those who witnessed the death, and even the way that we think of it sometimes, and I do say this with utter reverence, when we think of the death of Jesus Christ, we can, and we oftentimes do, become utterly fixated. And that, to the expense of what is really going on in the death of Jesus, we can become so transfixed upon the physical sufferings of Jesus that we miss the point. Because horrendous as the sufferings of Jesus were, and the prophet Isaiah would tell us he suffered more than that of any man, for he's a perfect man, and he's dying for imperfect men, he's bearing their sin, and he's dying. Well, perfect men don't die, but he's dying because he voluntarily takes to himself the sins of his people from every tribe and tongue and nation under the earth. And upon the cross, Jesus is meeting the terms of justice. He's fulfilling the law perfectly. He had never thought an evil thought or spoken an evil word or or performed an evil deed. He's wholly harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. But that separatedness deals with our creatureliness and our sinfulness and does so in an utter adequate fashion. It's sufficient. We can't add anything to it. And the very best that we can offer, if we can add anything to it, if we would add anything to it, we basically corrupt it. God won't accept it. He understood the death of Jesus as being a satisfaction because behind all that was witnessed in the death of Jesus and that which occupies our minds so very often, the physical stuff, is the act of God. You will remember, some of you will remember that upon the cross Jesus spoke seven times called it seven, seven sayings and seven cries of Jesus. You might be able to recall one or two or three or, or if you're very bright you might remember all seven. Can you think of any one of the seven that refers to the physical sufferings of Jesus? That, that's rather amazing isn't it? That's an amazing thing. Here's the son of God hanging upon the cross suffering the indignation of a godless world a death that's contrived by the Romans for non-Roman citizens, no Roman citizen was ever crucified, the most cruel death that any criminal could ever die, he's dying this death, and there's not a single word recorded for us in the Bible of the physical anguish of Jesus. That's rather extraordinary, isn't it? Well, I honestly believe this. A gracious God has kept silence 
because there was silence. There was nothing from him. But we do hear this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsakenness. All the brutality that was meted out upon Jesus and man's inhumanity to man as suffered by Jesus upon the cross doesn't receive the detail that we have added to it over thousands of years. And thus, we miss the point that in the death of Jesus, there's the activity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have this Trinitarian redemption where the Son of God is bearing the judgment. He's bearing the judgment of holiness. Of that, the Apostle Paul is utterly persuaded. And his former life, he speaks of as worthless rubbish to accomplish nothing. Now we come to the crux of the matter. All of that, his personal pedigree, his persuasion of the death of Jesus as being that propitiation, that means by which God has chosen to satisfy himself to meet the terms of his justice in order that he might receive sinners. God is just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. Then he comes to this great priority pursuit of which, again, we read in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death that I may know him. Well, here I am this morning in a Reformed Presbyterian church. The time I was converted was the Presbyterians, and I owe a great deal to Presbyterians. I owe a great deal also to the subordinate standards of Presbyterianism. And I suppose I could get you to stand this morning and recite something of the Catechism. First question, your catechism. What is man's chief end? Now you needn't all answer together. Man's chief end is what? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't put it in that form of words. The Westminster Divines did. But the Apostle Paul certainly had the principle in mind, and the Westminster Divines would certainly derive that great principle from Philippians chapter 3. I'm sure they did. The great purpose of human existence from the beginning, from the beginning of creation, the innocence and purity of the Garden of Eden, to the end of time, to the close of the books, and the final day of judgment, is very singular. For while there is one God, he's got no plan B. He's got one objective, to have a people for his pleasure. That's what it's all about. That's the wondrous simplicity of the message of the Bible. It's not multifaceted. There's not a multitude of messages. There is one message. One message that's consistently carried through from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And it's a wondrous message of the eternal God, the God that made the world and everything that's in it and sustains it to this point in time. He has a singular desire and it's to have men and women redeemed by the blood of his son to abide in his presence forever to worship him. 
that he might lavish in the countless ages, if we can speak of eternity in terms of ages, lavish the fullness of his intention upon a new creation. The first creation was marred. The second creation, perfect. Perfect in the eternal sense. The first Adam, free in every sense. The second Adam, a quickening spirit. The wondrous person of Jesus Christ giving himself upon the cross to die for sinners like you and I. That we might know him. It really makes Christianity so simple, doesn't it? With all the clutter, with all the clamor of the world, with all that our minds are concentrated upon, it's just a single matter that ought to occupy us throughout the life that we live. And it's to know God. That's simple, isn't it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. With all the complications and all the confusion that surrounds us, Here is the very epitome of theology itself, to know God. And God has done everything in creation, providence, but supremely in redemption, to bring about that great day when men and women from the world and all the ethnic groups of the world will stand before God when languages differ And it's all so different. There'll be the fulfillment of a singular purpose. The wonder of God's holy intention. And you find that, don't you, throughout the Bible. And yet we can so often miss the point. You you find it in the Old Testament. You find that God has taught his people this again and again and again. And yet the, the message seems so readily obscured from our vision. You go back into the Old Testament when God would meet with his people at first. He ordained through Moses, you remember, the building of a, a temporary tent, a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, as in the permanent building, the temple, there were similarities. The very approach before God was exactly the same. You had these outer courts, courts of women, men, and Gentile courts and all the rest, but supremely that the Jews should meet. And before they would go into the most holy place, the high priest would have to pass through the holy place. He would go into the most holy place just once a year to offer the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb for the sins of Israel. But before he would go into that place, he had to pass through this holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place, in which there was three pieces of furniture. And each piece of furniture had a message. And the message was one. Three pieces of furniture, but one message. You remember the golden candlestick and the altar of incense and the table of showbread. Now you can take them in whatever order you like. It doesn't matter. Take, for example, the the altar of incense. What was the message of the altar of incense? Well, we can can think about it. It was very fragrant. It was was all of that. There was something very lovely about all the the ceremony, and there was a great deal of ceremony. 
The very dress of the high priest was all very significant, the breastplate and all that went on it. But the altar of incense spoke to the priest and gave him a message. And the message with respect to intimacy. What, what does a woman do, or maybe men in this present age, they do too, they, maybe women open a, a bottle of perfume, and they, they attach it to themselves, don't they? Or, if you like, and it may not be the word that you would think of, but they become intimate with it, don't they? It becomes part of them. That's what it is. That's the altar of incense. The message was intimacy. He carries the fragrance through to offer the sacrifice. Isn't it the same with the golden candlestick? This place was enshrouded in darkness. The candlestick shed light. He was intimate with it. When he went outside the veil, he was separated from it. A message of intimacy. Today I'll go to my my daughter's house in Bangor um, for for lunch with uh, her American friends. And my daughter will put the meal out on the table and there it'll be. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be there. And I could sit and look at it. I could admire the structure of the meal and Modern cuisine now has as much to do with the aesthetic value as it has to do with the substance of the food, hasn't it? As it's laid out in the plate. But here I am, a man who likes the food, so I can look at it, but it's not going to serve the purpose for which it was made. The nutrients aren't, aren't going to benefit my body. I have to become intimate with it. Intimate with it. That was the message. Still the message. Singular message. What is the purpose for which you exist? It's, it's this to know God. To know him. And the great delight is that he knows you. And the great desire is that you should know him and derive benefit from the knowledge that you have of him. That's the desire. To know God. And to know him intimately. And we can be so busy doing so much. And church life can be very busy. And we can busy ourselves and we can tell ourselves that our busyness is really to be equated with blessedness. You remember, won't you, how our Lord would visit that home in Bethany, Mary and Martha, Lazarus. You remember how on one occasion whenever Jesus would visit that home, Mary sat at Jesus' feet. And Martha was making a meal, and as sometimes is the case in churches, the few people get all to do, and sometimes those who do all become a little bit tired and maybe a little bit irritable, and I know what happens. Martha comes and complains to our Lord Jesus, Lord, do you not care? Do do you not care? I'm doing all this stuff, and Mary is doing nothing. And somebody might be inclined to say, well, we do need the Marys and the Marthas, and of course we do to some extent, but let's be faithful to the passage of Scripture and let's not twist it in any way to suit ourselves. Do you remember the answer our Lord gave? That, that double-barreled use of the name Martha, Martha. You're cumbered about many things, many things. But Mary has chosen the better part. And we can spend a whole lot of time and expend a great deal of energy on so much. But the one thing that matters most is to know God. 
And from that, everything else issues. The effectiveness or the ineffectiveness of our evangelism will be determined by that and by that alone. Some of you will have heard of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. His predecessor at Westminster Chapel was a man called Campbell Morgan. And Campbell Morgan has, I suppose, a good illustration of what I'm endeavouring to say to you in closing this morning. He tells of how there was a rule in his home that even family would come on a Sunday afternoon, he would go to his study, and the rule was he wasn't to be disturbed. And as it would be, a particular Lord's Day, he went to his study, as he would do every Lord's Day. And he's sitting in his study, and I can only assume in the way he tells the story that his back was to the door, and he hears the door open and then close again, and he just assumed someone had forgotten the rule and opened the door, saw him there, and just left. Until he says, just after a few moments, he sensed there was someone in the room with him. And he turned around, and behind him, I can only assume a little granddaughter sitting, adopting a posture. I remember my own daughter would have adopted with her legs crossed, her arms folded. She was just sitting behind him, and she was sitting looking at him. And he said to her, and what do you want? And she said to him, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. How often are your prayers and mine celestial shopping lists of the give me this and grant me that? Worship has to do with admiration, hasn't it? To admire the God who has revealed himself to us. That God stands above his creation with all its complexity and wonder and detail. Above all of that, color, shape and form the wonder and the beauty of what we see with our eyes of the world that God has made, the God who made it is infinitely more wonderful and infinitely more lovely than all of that. Just quiet contemplation and worship and to know that God has revealed himself throughout the pages of the Bible is the experience that the people of God must ever have if we're ever to make a mark in an ever-increasingly godless world. They need to see. They need to hear. They need to witness what we claim to be. We claim to be new creatures in Christ Jesus. We're different people. We have different hopes and aspirations. We have different desires and different goals. We have a different destiny that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is the prize? It's Christ himself the hope of glory that I may know him I pray God it will be that desire that you have I have that it might become an increasingly burning desire 
that again we might experience more of this God and tell forth of that wonder that the world might see and know that we are what we claim to be. God's handiwork.